Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Boston, Massachusetts to discuss atrial fibrillation in the ICU with Dr. Alan Walkie. Could you please go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Alan Walkie. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine and co-director of our Evans Center of Implementation and Improvement Sciences. And thank you very much for the invitation to uh, be on this podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, Alan. So recently, your team published um, a really interesting review article in CHEST, the December 2018 uh, issue, entitled... uh, atrial fibrillation in the intensive care unit. I was hoping you could explain to us why your team uh, decided to perform this review and uh, the importance of uh, the topic. Yeah, so um, we've been interested in atrial fibrillation, uh, more specifically in nuance-set atrial fibrillation that occurs during critical illness uh, for some time. I think my early clinical experiences as a critical care fellow in the ICU brought uh, me many encounters with patients who had new onset atrial fibrillation uh, in critical illness, especially during sepsis. And uh, as a fellow, I had many questions about what this meant for the patients, uh, how do we manage the, these patients, both in the short term and the long term, both with regards to considerations for rate and rhythm control and also with regards to arterial uh, thromboembolism prophylaxis. And most of the people that I questioned, including, uh, you know, folks, critical care folks, uh, cardiologists, really said, you know, we're not really sure. <laughs> so this was an area that I thought would be a good area for me as a budding clinical epidemiologist um, and health services researcher to look into. So a lot of the research I've been doing over the past few years has looked at new onset atrial fibrillation during critical illness, and this review article was sort of a this is what we've and others have learned up until this point. And uh, I agree with you. In terms of my experience, I, I observed as a fellow that there was a lot of variability in the practice of different clinicians according to the patients that they saw. So maybe you could share with us what your team came up with in terms of how one should evaluate a patient with um, atrial fibrillation. And maybe just before that, uh, just give us a bit of background as to why it's so important um, in terms of epidemiology and outcomes uh, in the ICU uh, for, for those who develop a new onset atrial fibrillation? Sure. Um, so in terms of why it's important, I think um, it's important because it's actually fairly common, I think more common than we think um, in various studies of patients with sepsis um, and septic shock. The incidence of new onset atrial fibrillation ranges from about um, 5% of patients with, you know, sepsis to uh, 25 to 30% of patients who have septic shock. So it's something that we encounter a lot. Um, we also encounter patients who have previous atrial fibrillation that uh, sometimes we need to manage as well, and that's an even greater proportion. So something that happens, um, sepsis is about, um, has a risk of about sevenfold for new onset atrial fibrillation compared to other reasons for inpatient hospitalization. So uh, sepsis seems to be a strong strong driver in particular in almost all studies looking at new onset atrial fibrillation during critical illness. So it's 
uh, fairly common, so we encounter it. Um, when we encounter it, it seems to uh, at least be associated with bad things happening to patients. So um, soon after patients get new onset atrial fibrillation, we frequently see, uh, in addition to a rapid ventricular response and high heart rates, uh, we often see uh, dips in blood pressure, uh, worsening organ dysfunction, including uh, signs of heart failure or respiratory failure. Um, and so it's something that temporarily is associated with uh, worsening in our patients quite often. And epidemiologically, we often see that in terms of associations with increased mortality and even increased stroke risk. And the interesting thing is that the associations of new onset atrial fibrillation with both short-term, with short-term mortality and short-term stroke risk are also seen uh, many years out. So patients have increased risks of death, heart failure, stroke, um, even up to five years after their hospitalization in which um, they had new onset atrial fibrillation during a, an episode of sepsis. So it seems to have both short and long-term prognostic consequences. You actually had a pretty interesting uh, um, set of uh, ideas in the, the opening introduction about a fertile ground and versus uh, the seed for atrial fibrillation. And I thought that's pretty important for at least fellows to know, if not clinicians as well, knowing that uh, you've got to look at the substrate and uh, the triggers. Maybe you could share a bit about that first, and then we can move on to the evaluation of those with atrial fibrillation. Sure. So um, in uh, what I call, you know, traditional atrial fibrillation, so atrial fibrillation that occurs in patients in the community setting, this has been much more well-studied than atrial fibrillation that occurs among patients who are acutely or critically ill. So a lot of the things that we think about for atrial fibrillation um, are sometimes extrapolated from the community setting. And in the community setting, uh, atrial fibrillation is thought to be um, due to a, um, a combination of two things, so a um, a soil that's been that's fertile for atrial fibrillation, and usually that soil is an atrium that is uh, fibrotic and scarred, and um, that fibrotic scarred atrium is often in the community setting due to a lifetime of cardiovascular risk factors such as hypertension and diabetes and uh, hypercholesterolemia, obesity, those types of things, um, and then the. The trigger of atrial fibrillation can be many different things, including a um, catecholamine uh, surge or opposite or uh, vagal or parasympathetic surges um, um, and other just beats that are occurring at the wrong time in particular that can trigger an episode of atrial fibrillation that then can be self-propagating. So atrial fibrillation, when it occurs often, just results in more atrial fibrillation in the community. In the ICU, things might be a little different in terms of the, that um, pathophysiology, and um, that's because a lot of the studies uh, so far in the ICU have not shown the classic cardiovascular risk factors to be strongly associated with new onset atrial fibrillation in the ICU. So it seems that that fertile soil, that uh, quote-unquote, is um, being more rapidly produced by things that are happening actually during critical illness. So that's um, something that uh, 
we've, we've been studying as well as why, why are patients going into atrial fibrillation during critical illness when they often don't have the chronic uh, risk factors that you see in patients with chronic cardiovascular disease. And then if they don't have these chronic cardiovascular risk factors, why would they have recurrent AF later after their critical illness has resolved? So there's a lot of interesting questions there. Great. And then moving on to uh, your very interesting um, figure, figure two in the uh, manuscript that actually goes through a step-by-step -step evaluation of how clinicians should evaluate new onset AFib. And I was hoping you could just quickly walk us through those four steps or four or five steps that you outline uh, for the reader. Yes. Uh, so let me just start with a, with a caveat that there's not great evidence uh, you know, on how we should be managing these patients. So this figure and what I'm about to say is based on uh, opinion level evidence um, that has, you know, this is an opinion that's um, taken into account what we know so far in terms of studies, but um, there's not a lot of strong evidence to, to, uh, based on these factors. But I think when we start off with someone with new onset atrial fibrillation we want in the ICU, we want to view it like any other uh, clinical change that we witness uh, and that we observe. So we want to uh, first assess the patient and uh, examine them and uh, see is this a life-threatening change and, and what is the trajectory of the life-threateningness of the change. So is it immediate? Is it over more of a long term? So assessing the patient like you would for anyone. Um, are they actively decompensating? Assessing things like that. Do they have new organ dysfunctions? hypotension, heart failure. So um, while making these assessments, if you have a little bit of time, uh, you can search for modifiable factors. So these are often things like missed infection sources or um, beta agonist catecholamines that might be triggering and driving the atrial fibrillation, electrolyte disturbances, um, atrial stretch, volume overload, and you can try to correct those. But the, the four steps that I had listed in this figure for rapid clinical assessment are, um, one, looking for hemodynamic compromise, and if that hemodynamic compromise is uh, significant, then you want to activate your ACLS protocols, and which generally go with uh, synchronized cardioversion. Um, the, so that's the first step if things are, are going bad quickly for the patient. Uh, just as a caveat, though, um, that synchronized cardioversion in new onset atrial fibrillation uh, that's occurring during critical illness um, often requires multiple attempts at cardioversion and um, is often only successful about 70% of the time. And even when successful, um, within 24 hours, most patients go back into atrial fibrillation. So it's generally temporary. So we need to think about um, adding other things or doing other things to try to prevent recurrence. Um, so the second step is uh, looking for these offending agents that I had mentioned previously. So again, these can be beta agonists, antiarrhythmics, um, uh, vasopressors that might be more likely to drive atrial arrhythmias than others, for example, dopamine or uh, epinephrine, high beta agonist um, vasopressors, maybe can be switched to lower beta agonist vasopressors. The third step is looking for these reversible inciting factors, and these, again, can be correcting electrolytes, correcting ventilator dyssynchrony. You know, we know that 
sleep apnea is a trigger of um, of atrial fibrillation, uh, the outpatient setting, and so uh, whether or not ventilate, ventilator asynchrony and the, the similar sort of airway obstruction that might occur there can trigger atrial fibrillation is unclear, but it's always good to correct ventilator asynchrony. Um, optimizing your volume status, treating underlying infections, looking for other sources of infection, other drivers of inflammation that might be driving atrial fibrillation. Myocardial ischemia is not a common cause of atrial fibrillation during critical illness, but um, looking for that. Uh, getting an echocardiogram, uh, oftentimes to assess ventricular function, atrial size is helpful. And then uh, thinking about is if the atrial fibrillation is still present after doing all these things and is causing adverse effects uh, for your patient, then, um, you know, thinking about uh, medications. So um, would you like me to go through that or, or pause to answer oh, yeah, no, I think I, oh, no, I, I think they definitely go through the rhythm and rate okay. control, and then we can dive into um, uh, the, the controversies and uh, what, what research uh, avenues we need to target. Great. So after thinking about hemodynamic compromise, offending agents, reversible inciting factors, we want to think about um, how the atrial fibrillation might be causing adverse effects for the patient, uh, whether the adverse effects are primarily due to an increased heart rate or increased ventricular response, whether the adverse effects are due to loss of atrial systole or both. And this may be hard to do clinically, but um, different clinical situations might lead you to uh, different, um, different conclusions. You know, if the heart rate is 200, then that's likely causing adverse effects. Um, but if the heart rate is 80 and uh, the patient's in atrial fibrillation and they're decompensating right after the atrial fibrillation started, then you might uh, want to consider that loss of atrial systole uh, might be a contributing factor, especially in someone, say, with um, valvular disease, valvular heart disease. So thinking about the patient's history and the current situation. Um, for our First-line uh, treatments, if we're deciding to treat someone um, with new onset atrial fibrillation during critical illness, then um, we often go with uh, a beta blocker and often choose esmolol as it's incredibly short-acting, has a half-life of seconds. So if we've chosen poorly with esmolol, we can turn it off and it's gone immediately and we can rethink our strategy. Um, those uh, second-line strategies are we can consider things uh, if we're just targeting rate control like calcium channel blockers and digoxin um, and if it's seeming that rate control is ineffective or that we uh, are interested more in cardioversion of the patient um, out of atrial fibrillation then we can try magnesium infusions which often can uh, cause both uh, improved rate control and cardioversion, and also amiodarone. So there's lots of um, treatments available for us. Um, the evidence to guide some of these treatments uh, we can discuss uh, sh shortly, but is in generally, I think, a low-quality evidence for um, which to choose first and, and which to choose next. 
So as you mentioned earlier, um, most of the evidence in the critical care setting is opinion-based. So maybe you could share with us the level of evidence and uh, which research priorities we should focus on in the future um, to address atrial fibrillation in the ICU. Great. So there's not a lot of um, randomized trials in the ICU looking at different treatments for atrial fibrillation. There are um, some observational studies. So um, there are observational studies looking at time to rate control uh, for, uh, I think, beta blockers versus calcium channel blockers mainly, and um, Moskowitz um, looked at the time to rate control for beta blockers versus calcium channel blocker strategies in an observational comparative effectiveness studies, in an observational comparative effectiveness study, and they found that um, beta blockers had a shorter time to rate control, um, or more patients achieved rate control at four hours than um, in beta who received beta blockers than who received calcium channel blockers. Um, also interesting in this study, the patients who received Beta blockers had a non-significantly higher uh, mortality than other agents. There's other observational evidence that beta blockers might be better as a first treatment for atrial fibrillation uh, in the ICU. So in our patient, in our study of patients with sepsis, we looked at about 40,000 patients um, who had atrial fibrillation in the ICU and looked at the first intravenous medication that they received. Interestingly, we found that across the United States, the most common choice of a first medication for patients with atrial fibrillation during sepsis was calcium channel blockers, and that was followed by beta blockers, digoxin, and then amiodarone. We thought that the comparison with probably the least unmeasured confounding in this observational study was beta blockers versus calcium channel blockers, given that they're both nodal blocking agents, similar side effects, and that they were the two most common choices. And uh, patients who received beta blockers first actually had uh, a lower mortality uh, than patients who received calcium channel blockers um, with a relative risk of 0.92. And so there's, there's other indirect support for beta blockers during sepsis from physiological studies where there's improved ventriculoatrial coupling and improved cardiac efficiency for patients who receive a beta blocker during sepsis and septic shock. And then there's a randomized control trial, which is a single center trial by uh, Morelli and colleagues from JAMA that showed also a lower mortality for patients receiving beta blockers. So there's um, more evidence for giving a beta blocker preferentially as your first choice um, than other medications for uh, for treatment of atrial fibrillation during a critical illness, and in our case, uh, sepsis, which has been the most well-studied. Um, there's other studies outside of the ICU um, in the emergency room. There's a randomized control trial comparing diltiazem to digoxin and amiodarone as, um, as a first treatment, but that's for uncomplicated atrial fibrillation. Uh, they found that the time to rate control for digoxin was better than for amiodarone. I mean, sorry, for the time to rate control was better for diltiazem than for digoxin and amiodarone, uh, and that's Sue et al. study. And finally, there's some studies in the ICU that didn't show much different between much difference between a 
diltiazem strategy and amiodarone strategy except the lower blood pressure for the patients that receive diltiazem. So um, overall, the randomized uh, trial evidence is mostly indirect uh, with small studies outside the ICU. The uh, observational evidence is more direct where it's the patients that we're interested in uh, who have new onset atrial fibrillation during critical illness, but uh, not randomized observational data uh, for us to go by. Great. And then in your article, you mentioned uh, the controversy about initiating anticoagulation in uh, the critically ill. Maybe you could just explain to us uh, what the controversy is and what your preference is in managing those patients. Yeah, that's a great question. So in addition to the hemodynamic compromise, which we've spent most of the time discussing, um, patients who have atrial fibrillation are also at risk for arterial thromboembolism and most feared a stroke, um, an ischemic stroke. And this is because uh, with time and inflammation, uh, there is an increased thrombotic milieu in a fibrillating atrium where a clot can develop and then be sensed systemically. So we often wonder uh, for whom and when we should be initiating anticoagulation for patients with atrial fibrillation. And um, so we've, we've studied, so there's a risk of stroke, um, both in the short term and long term for patients with new atrial fibrillation uh, in the ICU. In an observational study that we did uh, that was published in JAMA in 2011, we found uh, about a twofold increased risk of, of stroke uh, during the hospitalization for patients that had new onset atrial fibrillation during sepsis. And that risk actually persists up for up to five years. That's as long as we studied after sepsis in another study that we published in CHEST. We then looked at whether anticoagulation uh, might show a signal of decreased stroke risk for patients during their uh, critical illness. So uh, we performed an observational comparative effectiveness study um, looking at patients who had atrial fibrillation during sepsis and those that did and did not receive anticoagulation. And what we found was no difference in stroke risk uh, for patients who received anticoagulation or didn't, um, and we did find an increased bleeding risk. Um, that that study is published in JAMA Cardiology. Um, so from that information, there's really not much other information about what happens to patients when you anticoagulate them during um, critical illness for their atrial fibrillation, um, but it seems that at least in the very short term that the uh, benefits would be very small uh, and the risks would be higher for, for bleeding. Um, in terms of longer term management, that's really unclear. There's no studies uh, looking at different management strategies in the long term. There are a number of epidemiological studies performed uh, from the Framingham Heart Study cohort by uh, Stephen Lubitz um, and uh, also by us that showed that uh, for patients with secondary precipitants of atrial fibrillation, so uh, things like surgery or acute illness like pneumonia, sepsis, critical illness, that those patients have about a 50% risk of having the atrial fibrillation recur later on within a year to five years, depending on the study. So it's a lower risk of recurrence or than patients that have known atrial fibrillation or preexisting atrial fibrillation, 
Um, but they have a, um, in, in our study, even patients with sepsis, there was a lower risk of stroke over the long term for patients who had new atrial fibrillation during sepsis than patients who had pre-existing atrial fibrillation. Um, however, it was a higher risk than patients who had no prior atrial fibrillation. So these patients look like they're sort of in between patients that have traditional community-acquired pre-existing atrial fibrillation coming into their critical illness and patients that don't have atrial fibrillation. So their um, benefits of anticoagulation are probably also in between those two groups, um, and the risks are a little less, uh, also a little less clear. They might be a little higher risk. So we need some better studies of the long-term, the best long-term strategy for these patients, whether it's um, giving them rhythm monitors when they leave the hospital to see whether the atrial fibrillation is recurring, and if we detect a recurrent atrial fibrillation, then they can be considered for anticoagulation, or um, whether uh, we assess bleeding risks and start them empirically after they leave the hospital uh, for a time with rhythm monitoring. These are strategies that we don't know which one, uh, on average, would have higher risks or benefits. Uh, right now, we consider patients um, who have atrial fibrillation during their critical illness, and we send them to the electrophysiology clinic after discharge for discussions about um, the best rhythm monitoring strategy for them, and they have a rhythm monitor uh, placed and then uh, are considered for anticoagulation if there's a detection of recurrence. So uh, the death practice obviously, I assume, isn't evidence-based as yet, but it, I think it definitely highlights the point that you're making that a lot of time patients, uh, we assume that after they leave the ICU, they better. I mean, obviously we fix them, but in truth, uh, the long-term sequelae are not really known. So what uh, strategy do you use in terms of, I mean, you send them to the EP folk to get assessed, and then uh, that's a once-off evaluation, or do you see them um, uh, every three months or is it up to a year? W what time period are you... Uh, monitoring your patients for development of atrial fibrillation, and what evidence do you have to back that up with? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I think highlighting, like, I, I wish that we had more evidence uh, and to, with which to manage these patients, um, and we, we are hopefully gathering that, but this is, uh, it's been a slow process. Um, we have this done at, at an individual patient basis, essentially, so we refer them to the cardiac electrophysiologist who meets with them, and they, uh, depending on what their course was in the ICU, what their prior history and risk factor profile was, and what the patient's wishes are, we'll come up with a plan for rhythm monitoring, um, whether it's, uh, you know, an implantable loop monitor, which can be there for months and, and monitor them, or whether it's something that's uh, more short-term or more intermittent, but then they do follow up and um, based on the findings of their rhythm monitoring. So um, I think um, based on our observations, it's probably these patients need a, a more long-term rhythm monitoring. So, you know, something like seven days after the ICU hospitalization is probably not going to detect a lot of the recurrences of atrial fibrillation, which seem to occur gradually throughout the year based on our um, prior studies in about half of patients. Um, so either a more intermittent uh, short-term monitor or a longer-term monitor like a uh, loop recorder um, 
would probably be optimal for these patients. In terms of closing up the interview, um, what other research priorities do you think uh, we should focus on in terms of atrial fibrillation in intensive care units that we haven't discussed as yet? Sure. I think there's a number of research priorities. So, you know, ideally I would like to see um, an adaptive type of trial or platform adaptive trial where we're studying the different therapies uh, for atrial fibrillation in the intensive care unit. So where um, we're randomizing patients to receive, say, beta blocker versus calcium channel blocker and what which one appears to be doing uh, better and then adapt to comparing it to amiodarone-based strategy or to dioxin-based strategy. And over time, we'll have a clear picture of what seems to be optimal management strategies for rate and rhythm control for our patients. Um, uh, ideally, and one thing that we're working on now is whether or not we can actually predict who will get atrial fibrillation during critical illness um, by looking at different changes in their um, electrocardiographic waveform characteristics and see if we can prevent this from happening um, because we know that once patients have atrial fibrillation, they tend to have it uh, for the long term. And so wondering if we can prevent this first episode, can we then prevent later episodes? Other um, areas are, as discussed, what are the best ways to surveil for atrial fibrillation recurrence after critical illness? Um, what are the risk factors for recurrence? And can the recurrence be prevented? Uh, after sepsis as well to help guide us for anticoagulation strategies and thromboembolism prophylaxis. So lots of questions still out there for, for folks to address. And so hopefully, you know, I won't have to say that there's such little evidence to guide us in, in the future as uh, more people study this entity. Yeah, that's definitely one of the more frustrating parts of critical care, uh, the lack of evidence. One other question, which is clinically based, um, when do you call the cardiologist uh, to come help you with your ICU patient that has atrial fibrillation? Sure, that's a great question. I think it's probably um, both intensivist and cardiologist dependent. Um, if um, there's a clear underlying cardiac pathophysiology that seems to be driving the atrial fibrillation, um, whether it's valvular disease or structural heart disease um, or cardiomyopathy, um, that might be a time to call the cardiologist. Um, or if, you know, you're getting into areas where you may feel less comfortable with management, if, um, if clinicians have less experience using antiarrhythmics like amiodarone or are thinking about other treatments, then certainly asking a cardiologist assistance would be, um, would be warranted. And um, also questions about anticoagulation. Um, I think, you know, asking for uh, consultation with colleagues and, and others' opinions is, uh, is helpful, especially in areas where folks might feel less, less comfortable. So I think it's clinician-dependent, um, but the areas that I tend to uh, bring them in are, are um, when it seems like there's uh, a structural heart problem that might be involved or driving the, the atrial fibrillation. Or if I'm, you know, um, having difficulty managing someone and, and uh, would like another brain on, on the problem.
Perfect. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming to join us on the podcast, Alan, and we wish you all the best with your research in atrial fibrillation and uh, all the great work that you've already done. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was uh, great talking with you. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. A big thank you to Dr. Alan Walkey, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.